Time and again, the world bears witness to truths seldom said. Lend an ear. We promise enlightened, informed conversation. My name is Robert, and this is Seldom Said, the place where conversation matters. Welcome back. My name is Robert. The program is called Seldom Said's very special guest today, Mr. Elaine G.I., who is the CEO of GlobalX Data Limited, one of the largest and most important cybersecurity companies in the world. Welcome to, Cir- to Seldom Said, Elaine. Thank you, Robert. Pleasure being with you. Um, if I may, it's GlobalX Data, but we are global, so you got partially everything right. That's marvelous. We'll meet halfway across the bridge and off we go. Yes. Can we start with a little bit of personal background, who you are, where you've been, uh, Elaine, and what's brought you to this time and place? Well, um, I'm a, I was born in Belgium of, uh, of, of mixed, uh, mixed nationality parents. Uh, my dad was from Iran and my mom from Russia. So I'm, I am international by, by mindset already. And this is what kind of leads to you building a global company. Born in Belgium, Swiss citizen. I have a degree from, uh, from architecture and structural engineering. I went to Pratt Institute in New York. Uh, and then the California College of Arts in San Francisco. And I built my first computer when I was 11. So that's a slightly more than 40 years ago. I always loved technology and uh, running a business. That was kind of my, my passion. So we move forward to my 30s. And I started this, uh, this uh, payment processing company called Global Paynet. And then in 2008, when the banks uh, crashed, there was no more credit for merchants. So we transformed that business into a data storage and data protection company. Our business was always to protect data, whether it's a credit card uh, information or medical record. And that's how we started Globex Data. I started in Switzerland. This is a company that's over 12 years old, privately held. And um, then set up shop in New York in 2012 with Globex Data Inc. to really bring our technology and especially the, the privacy aspect of Switzerland in a cloud business in, uh, in the U.S. I, I should say that when I started more than 10 years ago, everybody told me I was making the biggest mistake because the cloud is only in the U.S. Today we know it's not the case. It's a global phenomenon. And Switzerland has the strictest data privacy laws in the world. So we were probably seven, eight years ahead of our time. But eventually everything catches up. And I started this uh, Canadian entity a couple years back in Vancouver, Canada. And um, we started this holding company called Globex Data Limited. We just got it listed in the junior Canadian stock exchange market under a ticker aptly named Swiss. S-W-I-S, and I'm very proud to say that we are also listing on the U.S. OTC market with the same ticker probably right after Thanksgiving. So it's been a a journey. I've had a a few up and downs in my life, but what what I do believe is that privacy is important and people have the right to privacy, and that's what we try to bring. It's our prime directive is your privacy on the net. That does seem to be an imperative. I'm noticing so many examples in papers and on air where people's privacy have been incredibly compromised. I must ask one question that is always on the minds of 
the layperson out there in my listening audience, you mentioned that you are the product of Iranian and Russian background. I would imagine living in Switzerland and now in Canada, your French facility or English is quite good, marvelously so. Is language important for a person wishing to acquaint themselves with the intricacies of computer security? Or is computer language something that bypasses a linguistic tone or the use of words? That is an excellent question. Computer literacy, and I would say more the spirit of computer uh, coding and encryption, is really universal. There is no language. But if you're looking at the spoken language, it is English. English is the main language. Most of the terms are in English. So you have a terminology that doesn't translate in other languages. You know, you may have some French and Spanish. We work with uh, Latin America. We have a huge deal with America Mobile, which is a company owned by Carlos uh, Slim and his family, multi-billionaire out of Mexico. So we, we were actually testing this theory when we were integrating with uh, our Mexican counterpart. And really, most of the time, it was just English. But being an international uh, uh, mindset, having different cultures in your blood does help because technology is about openness and also about multi-direction, multi multi-standards, so to speak. It's the same in our culture. We have different cultures. You can call them different standards, and you have to integrate with all of them. That is the key. So technology offers that openness to the world. There's no real barrier, but the practicum language is really English. Would you say that language boundaries and geographical borders have simply been assimilated in the ether? Yes, they have. Uh, definitely they have. Most of the, of the young people today learning coding, whether they're in India or in Sri Lanka or, 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 or Colombia, they really have to learn the English uh, aspect of it. They may have their own, their own acronyms in, in their own language. I would say English is number one. And then you do have uh, more than half a billion people speaking Spanish. So they do have their Spanish terms. We see it. And the French too. I haven't seen any other uh, independent language in technology. So, for example, if you're from Thailand and you're a coder and you speak to somebody from Serbia, you will speak in English. And, and the person in Thailand is going to basically do everything in English. If there's one thing technology has found, it's that, that common language for the building blocks. It would seem that the imperative and the emphasis on English would give English-speaking countries an edge in the security issue. And yet, in Western Europe and the United States, there have been issues raised recently whereby security has been compromised. Do you feel we're simply not taking advantage of our tools? Well, remember I did mention that it's a cultural thing as well. In the English world, let's say the Western world, we do have a false sense of security. Uh, most of the English-speaking countries are democratic countries. So we feel safe and we feel very complacent. And we have a very high standard of living. In most other cultures, where you have to struggle and you have to be suspicious and you have to find ways to get around, it does breed that culture of, I'm not saying hackers, 
but basically a higher intelligence in terms of the complexity of your thought process. It's not just one or two dimensional. It's multidimensional. If you're in different culture where you have to make a living, where you have dynamics, different dynamics, uh, family values, etc. So uh, it, you do have an advantage if you come from a very old culture, I will say, because you have gone through all the, all the hardship, I should say. Um, so that, that does play a part. It's more of a cultural thought process than just some kind of English written language. There is a statement supposedly attributed to Robert Oppenheimer, the famous physicist. It could be apocryphal, but he was asked what's the first question anyone should ask in meeting another person, and he responded, just ask why and what for. Do you feel we need to breed a generation of skeptics? No, and that is that is an amazing, of course, you know, Dr. Oppenheimer was a genius, so that is a really good question. We don't need to, to breed skeptics. Uh, I would rather have, uh, but, but a little bit of, um, of awareness. Awareness would be a better word, I would say. Not as aggressive as skepticism, but awareness is already the first step. Today, the masses don't even want to be aware, or it's just background noise for them. And we undervalue the data that we hold. If you have a device, as I mentioned to a week ago into a financial advisor in Toronto, he was telling me, well, I don't have anything to hide and I use WhatsApp. Meanwhile, his WhatsApp was hacked, uh, admittedly, he told me, from overseas. And I said to him, if you have a device, you are of value. That is the first awareness we should have. And then from there, it moves up, right? Indeed. Indeed, it's never-ending, it would seem. No, never-ending indeed, because it, uh, we produce data, and not everybody is malicious. You know, you have commercial operation, and sometimes a hacker just wants to see what you're up to just for testing their skills, right? Uh, so we do have value. That is the first thing. And people who tell me I don't have anything to hide, it's not about hiding, and I don't have anything important you are important. Your data is important, maybe not to you, but for somebody who's going to sell it for a few hundred dollars a month. Now, there's mention made as to what happened at Suprema. It's a highly regarded international digital security company, which, uh, of course, you're aware of. Can you describe the listening audience in commonplace terms what did occur and why it was so worrisome? Um. At Suprema is a, is a biometric tech company, right? So when you have um, when you have biometric technology and and a lot of I would say intellectual property and data uh, in in a company, a company that holds all of that, essentially you start to be valuable to a lot of not just companies but governments as well. Um, so they do hold a lot of biometric data as, as some people may or may not know, but, um, I guess now it's, um, the, I know there's like a Senate uh, intelligence committee that is requesting information and, uh, it's, it's all about who's going to control that data now. That's what it boils down to as a cyber, cyber attack, uh, 
that, that, that was suffered by a contractor there is also another problem of these big companies. For example, we subcontract, not us, but big companies would subcontract work to third parties. And those third parties are not protected, right? They don't take the same protection maybe that the Suprema company would do. So you start to see leaks. That's what happens. The more you have layers and layers of people meddling into a data, the more you, you basically lower your security barrier because you have no control how it is handled. That is the most important is how do we handle data? How safe do we handle it, etc. So, yeah, I would say if you hire a subcontractor, I think this was an issue with one of their subcontractors, if I recollect correctly, you need to know who you're hiring to control the data of millions of people and of federal employees and so forth. Do you feel, Elaine, that in the ultimate, it is virtually impossible to be completely safe? And we're not talking about stopping hacking. We're talking about diminishing its effectiveness? Yeah, so before I answer that, uh, another thing about, in fact, we cannot be, there's no safe, but even there is a bare minimum that we need to do, and one of them is at least encrypt biometric data. This, this is one of the things that happened at Suprema. Uh, it's a database that was unencrypted and then it was exposed. So if you say there is no safe, well, yes, we, we basically cannot be 100% sure. And when I meet clients, I always tell them it's never 100%. What we try to do is reduce the risk of exposure. But at the very least, you should encrypt your data and your database. You know, that would be a start. As a, as a masses, we are not 100% protected. And it's not just technological. I have to tell you, a lot of behavioral aspect of hacking uh, uh, plays a big part in this. Because if, uh, if we behave in very um, complacent way and we post our status on social media every 30 minutes, and we use unencrypted Wi-Fi and so forth, well, the risk is going to be astronomic. Uh, so there is no 100%, but you can reduce that risk, basically. The minute you have a device, you are at risk of somebody snooping into it. It doesn't mean it's going to be automatic. Uh, when we didn't have, you know, smartphones, you and I would remember that, we were harder to find, and you didn't have all these breaches. I would imagine in a career like you've had, there are any number of epiphanal moments. Can you share some of those with a listening audience where you had that aha imperative where something occurred that you could use again, or something was so astounding you proceeded to use it again? In, in terms of my career, you mean, or in terms why, of your career, kind of how I got into it? And Basically, uh, but one can add uh, to in terms of your associations since and things that have enlightened the light ahead, the struggle ahead, something learned instantaneously that wasn't taken out of a book, a lecture, or background. Well, experience is the best teacher, as they say. Um, I, I think the first time I really got my aha moment to get into this was when I guess the first, uh, when there was, it, it, when I heard 
people's reaction as I was trying to pitch our company. And I realized there is a massive complacency, there's a lack of knowledge. And I figured a few years from now, you know, we're not going to use USB stick to store data. It's all going to be on the cloud and in a device. And there will be a need for A, privacy, and B, protection. That was the first time that I took this business extremely seriously and, and, and thought that there would be a, especially the privacy aspect, it did take a long time until people are slowly catching up now. Uh, that was a moment when I saw the complacency of people. I saw an opportunity there. In terms of um, uh, things that I have seen that, that kind of woke me up, well, we've seen a lot of things. You're never blasé. There's always something new. I do, um, I mean, I'm very much informed of a lot of the, the, the breaches and whatnot. But I think the biggest thing now, the biggest danger that I see out there, and I don't have a solution for it, is all these biometric tools and internet of, uh, of uh, what is IoT, um, internet devices, internet of things. I see, I'm, I'm horrified at where the world is going, where you can just look at someone down the street from your control center and identify everything they have done and what kind of social score they may have, etc. So that is an aha moment that scares me, actually. In terms of everything else, you kind of, as you get experience, you have less of these moments. They have to be very big. But what scares me now is that uh, is where society is going with technology, essentially. That is a, more of a scare. I'm more scared than just enlightened. It would seem, from what you've just said and what most people have read, that we're rather blind as to the apocryphal effects of something like this. We're like a child who can't swim rushing into the surf. Do you feel that we are perhaps going too far ahead, too fast, too soon? That there is a place for carbon paper and there is a place for slowing down and being security conscious? I definitely believe that we are going too fast. Uh, the, the the human mind is the most amazing thing, and we probably have the most powerful computer inside our head. I still believe that. But there is a comprehension level. There is a social aspect that the big companies were able to, dare I say, um, dumb us down a little bit so they can mine data from us. We're just mines, basically, for big companies. And they keep us in that lull where if it's easy... If it's monthly, if it's rentable, we live in that instant society, instant gratification. You don't want to push more than two buttons and have everything at your fingertip. Well, if you want that, you will give away all sorts of barriers and security and freedom. It boils down to that. The easier the, the access, the more dangerous and the more unsecure it is. And I think that now with the, the breaches that happen and I think Facebook and all the other guys and the Europeans coming up with very strict laws. Society is slowly waking up. It will take a, a long time. But we have been complacent for the past, I will say, 10 years because we have been hooked on this technology and this lifestyle of instant and fast. There is a limit to what we can absorb. You know, it, there's also a quality of life 
there's a thought process. It's nice to, you know, take a, an hour meal instead of a five minute meal, right? It's the same thing in technology. You know, clicking on 50 things is not going to make you more efficient. So I say that there was Moore's law, one of the, I think the founder of Intel, he said every 18 months, processing power doubles. Now it's a lot more. I think it's too much. And I think there is a social backlash that is just beginning, at least in the West. Um, and people are slowly looking at privacy, but that's only because the big companies got caught and now there's regulations. But for the past 10 years, they were squeezing everything out of us and got us hooked. Do you feel that, in a sense, we have to judge ourselves more so as citizens of the planet than of particular status in a country or a place? There's a phrase I've used uh, periodically on this program, Je suis un citoyen de la monde. Do you feel that uh, you are of necessity having to be a citizen of the world? Yeah, I think now with... Um I am, I mean, me personally, I, I do, I don't pretend, but just say I have been exposed to different cultures. I, the world is, is one place. Technology has made it very small. So I do believe I am a citizen of the world. I don't believe in a hardcore barrier between countries. I do believe in independence of each country. So, but on a, on a bigger, on a bigger plane, on a higher plane, I think we're all citizens of the world and technology has brought that to us. It's important to keep your cultural and your sovereign identity. I really believe that. But you can also coexist because we all, we all coexist in the same planet and we use the same technologies too now. You know, in the Pharaoh's day, you had different writing. You had uh, you know, you had uh, the, the Egyptians using one language, the, the Persians another, the Greeks another. Today, the language is technology. Everybody understands it. It has its dangers, social media, etc. But I believe that being uh, thinking like a citizen of the world is a good thing. I believe, I don't know about a necessity, but it is important to be open to what's going on outside of your border. Is the company then, Globex Limited, a prisoner of the nation that they're investigating, having to deal with their mores, folkways, their laws, their legislative processes? In a sense, well, I, I, forgive yeah, me, sorry. continue. So Globex Data Limited, being a Canadian company, having a Swiss technology um, is in a very privileged position. Uh, Globex Data Limited actually was created to expand in the emerging market, the developing nations. So Latin America, South Asia, and uh, Middle East Africa. This is an entity that is basically built to be open to all of the other countries people don't think of. Having a, a tripartite group, being a U.S. entity, for North American laws and, and regulation, having the data stored in Switzerland only from our Globex Data SA, our Swiss private company, uh, we have the advantage that we can keep people's privacy, obviously, no matter where they are, and uh, also operate globally. For example, if we were just in Switzerland, 
I would say it would be a lot more difficult to operate throughout Asia and South Asia because of the barrier, the proximity, the cultural issues, and also the distances are, are big. So we, we set up our, our group in a, in a decentralized way. This is what you have to do. We don't feel that we have any constraints here whatsoever because it goes right back to where the data resides. All our servers are in Switzerland. And in Geneva, you have all of the United Nations, you have all these companies in the data center. So Geneva is a very international city, and you have most of the global organizations with either a headquarter or an office there. So we're a bit unique uh, in that way. Uh, if somebody needs to subpoena the data, let's say, of one of our clients, that client would have had to commit a penal crime in Switzerland. Switzerland data laws are so strong that that's, that's what it would take. Also, the big thing in terms of globalization, probably something we, we, we should discuss, the infrastructure that the world uses. Uh, we don't use any third-party infrastructure. So we don't use Amazon Web Service, Microsoft Azure, or Google Cloud. We have our own. If we were to use an AWS uh, platform, and I'm a big fan of Amazon. I think it's a fantastic company and a great investment but we don't use AWS because the data is splintered all over and also subject to the U.S. Patriot Act because Amazon is a U.S. company. And that doesn't give the privacy that we, you know, that we want to offer our clients globally. So being Swiss originally, it goes right back to that. We are international, but we're a very small country. And we do have, most of the world has through the UN or not, an office in Switzerland. So that helps. A number of days ago, I did an interview with a, a burgeoning economy in Ghana, Africa. Mm -hmm. I sensed that uh, their experience or their experiential background with computer technology was limited. How would you approach this burgeoning market you've mentioned in the third world with no background, what is the advice you initially would give and how would you proceed in bringing that person into the technical cybersetic world? That person in Ghana, you would say, right? So somebody in Ghana that would probably need more education on technology and, and cybersecurity, is that what you mean? Yes, bringing someone into a circumstance, whether it be Ghana, Africa, Nepal, whatever the circumstance might be, yeah. bringing them into the doorway, bringing them into the cloud. Well, in in um, so there's two things. In fact, you mentioned Nepal. We were going to do a deal with Nepal. So in some countries, you have the government that has a very strong hold with extremely strict regulation and a big hand on top of the businesses. In those cases, and I don't know if Ghana is like that or not, in those cases, it, it really, ha people just have, they're at the mercy of their government. So in a case where there's more democracy in a country, I would encourage them to go online and learn about it. I mean, that's how easy it is today. Uh, you do have to want to learn it. So there's a basic education. And there's also, again, the language barrier, English being the common language of technology. So there are steps. First, improve your English. That would be a start. And then um, go online 
and and check what's going on. There's a lot of online courses you can take for coding. I would first I would see if there's an industry in your own country. I mean, today everybody needs technology. Some countries have a surplus of engineers and some don't. In Ghana, for example, which is an emerging market, uh, there would be a big advantage for somebody to learn technology, be good at it, because then they can get some uh, really good contracts and have an assured employment. Uh, technology employs a lot of people uh, in, in countries like Africa and, and all over the place. There are websites where you have freelancers, like a company called Upwork, uh, which I've used 10 years ago. It was called Odesk. And you had people from all over the world making from like $5 to 100 bucks an hour doing everything from coding to graphic design. That's the beauty about technology too. You know, we've been talking about the negative effect of technology, but there's something great about technology is that it does democratize economically the world. Uh, that's one of my favorite aspects of technology. People can learn a skill. It's available now online and you can make good money. So your advice to someone who's looking for something challenging and technological would be to enter the field. You feel that uh, one doesn't have to really possess that incremental absurdity in the way of intelligence to deal with it. No, you don't need a PhD. You just need to have, I mean, it sounds cliche, but you need to have the passion. Without passion, you won't do anything proper, right? You're not going to achieve your maximum efficiency. So have a passion for it, and you have all the tools on the net. Of course, you know, it helps if you're good in math or something, but I'm not a coder, uh, as hard as it may be. <laughs> I'm not a coder, but having had architectural and engineering background, I do understand the big picture and how systems work and how they need to integrate. Uh, but no, you don't need to have uh, huge skills. You start with the first step. Every, every walk starts with one step. And if you put your mind into it and the will to it, uh, you can achieve it. There's different levels. Definitely, I would encourage someone to go online and check out what kind of courses they can get for free. You mentioned your architectural background. Did that lend itself to a greater facility with spatial relationships that lent themselves in turn with understanding more? Well, architecture is a, is a discipline that helps you think. It teaches you how to think critically. And in any business, if you want to achieve the level that we are achieving, you need to have a lot of critical thinking and thinking what is the next 10 steps to grow it, right? So architecture helps me in this way. I wouldn't say it helped me in my business for spatial of any sort. It did come in handy when I was trying to do conceptual uh, projects. So you have your concept and then you have to execute. Execution is key. I always like to say that because you can have amazing ideas and then it stays being a doodle. But architecture is also the tiniest detail of a connection of two things being put together. So the thought process is what really I took from the architectural degree, how to think and how to critically think and how to solve problems. You always have problems to resolve when you're designing 
you know, a museum, an amphitheater, or a high-rise. There's a myriad of problems that you will have to resolve. And this is what it taught me that I took in my business. More and more, the media is playing up the premise of government-sponsored hacking. Do you feel that it does posit a problem for the future, that this is prevalent and it's being done by everyone concerned about their own national security interests? And how would one deal with that? Well, absolutely. It's, it's now a common thing. You know how you have the Army, Air Force, and Navy, and then the Marines. Well, there probably a, there, there is, I'm sure, a fifth element now, cybersecurity in the armed forces. Because this is what every country of any means has. Instead of going to battle to some place, you can completely disrupt the stock market of a country. You can make a stock market crash or whatever you want to do. Warfare now is economical. It's not about killing a million people anymore. It's more economical. We see it obviously every day today with the trade wars and what have you. But cybersecurity can disrupt a country's economy or political stability from a distance. This is what's scary. So I will say in this case, bigger is better. The most powerful countries are the ones with the most economic means. And you know how we used to have the Cold War and we grew up, I'm sure you and I in that time and, and the race to arms, etc. Well, now you have the race to the most the technologically advanced countries. That's what's going to win supremacy. And it's, it's uh, sad, but uh, it does save lives. You know, we're better off now than in the 1914 and 1918 war, but the ramifications are much bigger with a flick of a, a few keystroke. You can disrupt an entire economy. Think about that. Or you can shut down the electrical grid of the entire eastern seaboard in the U.S. or anywhere. So, yes, countries have uh, big uh, resources they're putting into that. I always say the government is not going into your little phone and wanting to know what you're doing. Cyber hack is much bigger than that. You have commercial exploitation, which all the big companies do openly because we use free services. They're not free because we are the product. That's already accepted and known. The government warfare is a whole different thing. You know, we heard a little bit about it during the elections and now in Canada, they're having a federal election October 21st, and I have been interviewed a few times about how maybe are the candidates protected enough on cybersecurity. You never heard that stuff before. Never. I know more and more people are talking about paper balloting. It's almost a step backwards. Do you feel that that is the proper defense on occasion, stepping backwards rather than running forward, especially in agencies as important as that? Well, paper balloting in what I will call the more democratic developed countries that have systems in place for control and fairness, I would say it's 100% better. But if you do paper balloting in a, in a country where there's a dictator out there and it's all tricked, well, no, it's not going to help you out. Uh, I would say in the U.S. and Canada, which are big democracies, yes, paper balloting is not a bad idea. 
Because if you do electronic votes, uh, in fact, in Canada, I think in Nova Scotia, yesterday I was on a radio and he told me there were elections and they were all online or something like that. Somebody is running that machine or that website and it's not the government. They subcontract all of that. So now you're relying on a business located maybe in this country that uses outside workforce in South Asia, for example, to make sure that your elections are well run. Think about all the leak and all the insecurities, all the all the problems you can have. So yes, paper balloting, I'm not against it. There's something about the Canadian approach to circumstance that reminds me what we were and what we perhaps should be again. There is an openness there is an ease to the acceptance of free expression and morality. Do you feel, given the fact that you've traveled and lived in a number of countries, that Canada does have a kind of moral imperative edge? Well, Canada has one-tenth of the population of the U.S. It's like saying if you go to Finland, things are great. Well, of course they're going to be great. Or in smaller countries and everybody's open because... You don't have the population density. I really believe there's a ratio of, of several things. First, economic stability and the gap between the rich and the poor, the wealth gap that plays a huge part in people's mind. If you have a huge middle class, everybody is open to everyone, even if you have half a billion people. If your middle class is shrinking, then you start to look at, you know, outside of your door what's going on uh, because you're you're unsatisfied and in the u.s with all the you have what over 300 million people canada is still a new country it has a tenth of the population it it is now transforming itself i'd say that's a question i can answer in in 10 years we do see um you know slowly a little bit here and there people are unhappy about immigration or other things. I don't want to say it's a better place or more open than the U.S., but it is a much smaller country in terms of population. That is a, a big thing. And it doesn't have Latin America at its border. It has nothing above and the U.S. in the south. So, of course, it's going to be much more serene. Can you give us an example, apocryphal if you wish, or anonymously, Give us an example of what a particular hacker might do in taking advantage of the mistakes of the person he's checking, and then in turn what that person should have or should do to defend themselves. So a hacker, sorry, can you, can you rephrase the question for what would the hacker do? Sorry. Most certainly. Uh, there's an old story told about a birthday party and a person looking down and finding his cake constantly gone and not knowing where it went or who took it, what does the informational thief do to take advantage of weaknesses and mistakes in his target? Mm. And then in turn, what should the target do? Great question. Okay, so what the informational thief does, the first thing is they will, if they're, I would say, we're going to take it from the top. The first thing they do, and these are not little guys in dark rooms, they're machines and organizations. Sometimes it's just some guy in a, 
in a studio just goofing around and trying to hack people. But let's say on the bigger hacks, these are machines that hit directly the infrastructure of the companies that have a lot of user base. That's that's the most economical to a hack is to go to a Facebook or a Google or a or a DoorDash, for example, which is a food delivery system that got hacked two weeks ago, and hacked seven to ten or a hundred million people. And how do they do that? They go first in the database of those companies. Those database, as we discovered with uh, with um, the other company, what was it that you mentioned? Um, that had a database on protected Suprema. Suprema so yeah. these databases may or may not be secure. If they're not secure, it's a trove. It's a tre- treasure trove. And then they steal the data. They have your credit card, everything. They resell it. Okay, we know the business. Now, if somebody hacks your phone or your device, uh, first, they'll get in because they built a profile on you based on artificial intelligence. So if you use social media, which most people do a lot, these hackers can build a whole profile on you. They know which bank you use, where you go eat during your lunch break, and which gym you go to, and which website you order your food from or anything else. So once they have that information, that's it. They're in, no matter what you do. So the first thing I should say is reduce your social media dramatically, if you can. Uh, the other thing is, it's a usual, very basic uh, concept. Use encrypted in uh, Wi-Fi. Uh, use complex passwords to get into everything that we need now to get into a password. I would say even try not to use applications on your phone for banking because they do store metadata. And if your phone has been compromised, then you have a breach potential. If you need to do e-banking, try to go on a secure website and do it from home or from a laptop that would be more secure so there's three four things that you can do because once they get into your phone they also have your address book once they have your address book they will compromise all your friends and family whoever is in your address book Uh, there was a famous hack actually on whatsapp i think five days ago where i guess it was a gif it was some kind of image and people clicked it You see, people do things without thinking now. That's the problem. The problem is we don't think anymore because we were taught not to think. Everything's easy and instant. So we need to go back in time where we had to think before we act. And I can tell you uh, with certitude that the risk of hacking will reduce dramatically because half of our issues are human behavior related. That was a long answer. Sorry about that. That's a fascinating point, though that the uh, the weaknesses are within ourselves. So let's say for the purpose of example, then uh, using something hypothetical, an individual feels they've been hacked. They feel they've been compromised. They're nervous about it because so much is available to those persons they disagree with. They come to Globex. What is your advice to them and how do you initiate them into a protectionist mode? So typically, uh, the first advice I would give them Of course, it may be a little bit biased. The first advice, whether they use our services or not, is to tell them, go to an encrypted internet. Use your 4G instead of free Wi-Fi, especially in the U.S. It's it's so cheap now and it's unlimited. Uh, Don't do banking from your phone if you can avoid it. And also reduce your footprint on social media. 
And uh, last but not least, use a password manager and use a complex password and change them frequently. That would be the first thing. That'd be the free advice. Then if they come to us, we would provide them with our services. We have an encrypted email system that we use. In our email, you can even send an email to somebody else. Let's say somebody who has an unencrypted version of an email, like a, like a free service. I'm not going to name brands, of course. We all know all these brands. But if I send you an email and you have a free service, our system basically lets, uh, notifies you to click on a link. And then you are the only person that can see that email, not the ISP or the email provider. The other thing is, if you don't have, let's say, our digital safe, but you're a guy that uses your own company email, but it's unencrypted, we have a system that sends you an email, it notifies you, you click on a link, and you're in our Swiss server. So email is 85% of all the financial fraud, by the way. So email would be the most important thing. We typically cater mostly to businesses, but we do have a ton of individual people in the U.S. that buy our services through an identity theft company. So that would be the one thing. If you want to do chats, my rule is if you use WhatsApp, who doesn't use WhatsApp, don't write anything in there that um, you don't want everybody to know. So in other words, if you're writing something on WhatsApp, just assume the whole world is reading that text. That, that is a fact. And when you talk, they transcribe your conversation, as we saw, I think, a couple of months back with Facebook and Messenger. So we do have um, an application called Private Talk or Private Talk. And that application, again, it's our Swiss servers. It has self-destruct timer, et cetera. The other person needs to have it but we have our own proprietary technology. So typically a business would come and, you know, once they've been hacked, we try to give them the best advice. They have to change everything, password, database, phone devices too. Because the thing, Robert, is that when you download an application, I don't know if you noticed, they always ask your phone number. Did you notice that? Mm -hmm. It's a very common thing. When you give your phone number away, you automatically give your device ID. And even if you change a SIM card, if somebody got in that device, that's it. So now you have to change your phone. So it, could, it can go as low as change your password and as big as change all your devices and use this now. I judge that you're inferring that it can be corrected it's better, of course, to start at the beginning with security consciousness, but you feel that there is no circumstance that is beyond repair. Well, if, if you have been hacked and they took your data, there's nothing to correct. You just don't have a choice. Now you have to start from scratch and, of course, inform whoever you're doing business or, or you talk to and explain to them, I have been hacked. Just be aware of it. If you get a text that says, can you wire me $20, make sure you ask me first because it wouldn't be me, things like that. Um, I would say if you have been hacked, unfortunately, there's not much you can do except moving forward. You want to make sure you have insurance. It's kind of like when you have a flood or, or a theft. This is perfectly the same thing. If you 
a thief came to your home and took some items. They're gone. But now you know what to do next, or at least you seek advice. You put more heavy doors or whatever you have to do, alarms, etc. Um, unfortunately, when you have when you suffer a hack, there's very little you can do to recuperate anything. You, you would have to change everything. It's like having a new identity at the end. That would be the best way to do it. It's an incredible analogy. How do you feel about the argument that under certain circumstances, privacy should be the province of government if individuals want to find out what is happening, especially in this world of ours with so many terrors and problems and issues, government should have the right to access? Well, um, I don't think the government should run privacy. Well, we know that some governments are great, but some really mess up things. So privacy belongs to you. I, I think I, I read a long time ago that you are the property of the government because think about it. We are citizens. The passport is the property of the government. We belong to the government to start with. We do. You know what I mean? Because if, if you harm someone, then you're punished. We, we are productive units for the government and for the greater good of society because we are all producing. We all live under one roof in one country under one government. So rule number one, I really believe we belong to the government. Now, I don't think the government should run privacy of everything, but I do believe firmly that the government should be allowed to have access to data in cases of extreme, you know, or national security, terrorism, etc. I am, as much as I love privacy, I think for these kind of uh, events, the government should have access because it endangers the national security of every citizen when you have people blowing up people all over, right? Why wouldn't you give access to help the greater good? It's contradictory to my Swiss nature, but in Switzerland, you know, we do have uh, um, universal voting. We have uh, referendums and things like that. And we do have a law in Switzerland. If there's a penal crime that is made, uh, then somebody should give up their privacy and here, look at my database. It's not me or something like that. So I do believe the government should have access to um, where you have been, let's say. Now, the the trick is to make sure that the government is honest enough, right? That's that's not easy to do. And the government will not abuse of the power that is given to them. If you were to <coughs> take the advantage of someone coming to you, how might they contact Globex? What might they do? What effects might they have? How can they investigate what you've done, where you are, and where you'll be? How do they approach you? Well, first of all, we're a public company now in Canada, so everything we do and say is is out there in the net. We're going to be in the U.S. too, actually. Um, so somebody can contact us and say, hey, I want to see that. You know, So we would show them what we do. We would uh, typically would be here, you want to try a trial account. So we would give them trial accounts. We, we do have a contract with the third biggest telecom operator in the world called America Mobile, which has actually a, a phone company in the U.S. called TrackPhone. They've got 20 million subscribers. 
and we have been vetted by them. So in terms of, let's say, reputation, we have been vetted by many companies. We used to be a client of Comcast as well in the U.S., providing cloud services to them. So a business would come and say, okay, these guys are legitimate. What do you do? We would introduce them to our services and move from there. Um, and because we are a public company in the in Canada and U.S., are not our Swiss entity, but Switzerland basically spent a few million dollars building the tech. The rest of the thing is, is public info now. So we have that transparency. They would go to globexdatagroup.com and contact us from there or email us corporate at globexdatagroup.com. Or they just type the ticker Swiss. I think in the U.S. is Swiss F, S-W-I-S-F, because we are a foreign issuer. And from there, you can find us. We have news all the time. Now, I'm speaking to you from a college campus. There are many gifted young people, both male and female, obviously, throughout the world. How might they prepare for taking an active and creative role in a company like Globex? What advice would you give someone leaving high school, entering higher education? What should they take? What should they do? How should they approach their future career? Well, in a company like Globex, you have the engineering aspect and you have the commercial aspect. So I would say um, if we were to hire someone, let's say coming out of high school or talk to Bill who's just entering college, we would first want to find out what they're into, what they like. You know, somebody might be really good with people. In that case, well, you put them into sales and marketing. Regardless, whatever they do, whether they do sales or engineering, what is critically important is to inform yourself on a daily or weekly basis about what is going on in the world. And of course, because we're a cybersecurity and secure data company, obviously something about cybersecurity, and you don't need to go to great, great details. You have your two, three websites that tell you all about uh, you know, the news. There's a website called LIFARS, L-I-F-A-R-S. It's, uh, it's really good. You can subscribe for free. And it gives you on a week, monthly, I think, uh, a bunch of information, who got hacked, what happened. It's a cyber security website that informs people. So the, I, I subscribe to that. But I would say be informed. You know, don't just go and take classes. Be informed outside of the classes as well. Read and know what's going on. Get off from your social media and start to read more interesting and more informative things. Because by the time you leave college, even if you have a degree, the very big thing that a company like us looks like is experience, proactiveness, and most of all, critical thinking. So that would be, that would be my advice. You know, read, inform yourself, because it's important. Right? It's, it's, uh, it's not just about passing some classes. You need to think outside of the box and be proactive and critical. Frankly, you speak rather analytically quite well. Uh, you explain uh, experientially those things that affect an issue. Do you find yourself compelled to wanting to put that to paper, becoming the author as well as the computer specialist? I'm going to tell you a big secret. 
Okay, I am a very slow reader, and to write, it would take me a long time. I would love to, at some point, putting it into writing. Um, English, you know, I, I didn't go to, to writing classes or anything. I guess I could if I had some time. It all, it's all a matter of time. I could put it in writing. It's not the same as talking with someone. I'm more of a verbal, visual person. If I had somebody writing notes for me, I definitely could do that. But I, I'm, I'm in the school of there is no textbook. You have to experience things. It's hard to explain. I was never a, a textbook person where you read the manual and this is what will happen. There is some of that in the world because you do have to have guidelines and structure. But I, I'm more of a person of uh, go with the flow and experience and learn from your experience and improve from that experience. You never learn enough, right? You never, you can live up to 100 years and you will learn something new. So I don't know if I would put it in writing. I could give lectures. I could do that. There is a marvelous poetic statement attributed to Robert Browning where he said, every day you wake up, you're experiencing something new. And perhaps as you describe and discuss, that is the way we should approach this whole age of cloud technology. Taking that a step further in the two minutes, and it's the tale of a good program when it goes so fast, Alain. I certainly appreciate your time and information. If I click my heels, make a wish, blink once, first star to the right, what do I find you doing in 10 years? Well, I'm passionate about what I do, so I will always be in Globex, hopefully. Uh, in 10 years, I would like to run a truly global company and I, I, I know I will be probably one of the last companies in the world offering people true privacy at least in our in our products that we offer because one of the things that we will never do is look at your data mine it or sell it so we take great pride in that I'd like in 10 years obviously to have a very successful company make a lot of money for our shareholders and maintain our true self which is Prime directive is your privacy. That is what we, we want to stay on that road. And, you know, that's business-wise. Personally, I, I enjoy my life and, and my, my life with my wife and friends. And I know if I can help people along, people have helped me. I'd like to give that back to people, definitely. In ending the program, are you looking for private investiture in the listening audience? Absolutely. We actually, if you're, if you're in the U.S. Or, or anywhere, actually, you can contact us. You can look at corporate at globexdatagroup.com. We are doing a financing right now until year end. And after that, you'll be able to buy the stock directly in the U.S. market uh, or in Canada. You can already buy it. We're always open to investors in the next 12 months. And after that, we're probably going to shut down all the rounds because we will we will keep it tight and, and profitable, obviously. Yes, so thank you for this opportunity and we'll be happy to talk with you and send you some information. It's a great business because it is a recurring revenue business. We're dealing with emerging markets, huge population, great adoption of technology, and we offer a unique solution. That is marvelous. We appreciate the time of Elaine G.I., 
who is the CEO of Globex Data Limited, a man who's a specialist and who's conquered his own needs in his speciality. You were an excellent guest, Elaine, and I hope that uh, you would be considering coming back later on in the future. Thank you. It was a great honor to be with you. I truly enjoyed it. And uh, yes, feel free to, to ask for me again. And I'm, I'm looking forward. Uh, this, this was a very, um, very informative interview for me as well. So thank you, Robert. And thank you to all the listeners out there that are taking their valuable time to listen to us. Thank you so much in turn. It was our, it was our really joy. Thank you. This is Seldom Said, the program where conversation matters. If you want to hear guests like Elaine G.I., come back to our program again next week. Good day. Mm-hmm.